Chickadee, chickadee. Riley Stewart, naked in the woods with a stick pail, and a bunch of birds perched on his shoulders, his head, his elbow, and one on the small of his back. Boom! Nailed another opening! So do you know what, seriously, that most people make the decision whether or not they're going to listen to a podcast within the first minute? And I think it's my openings that have attracted a whole new listenership. Welcome, Iceland! What are we gonna do with you? We do, we have a, 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 a sizable listenership from Iceland now. Maybe when you're doing all those hoots and things, you're accidentally speaking their language. I don't know, what, what do Icelandic citizens speak? I don't even, Icelandic? I wonder what it, it which sounds Which would be, like. I, I would assume, based on their history, would be some form of Scandinavian. I would hope. I, I, I assume their ancestors are of uh, Danish and Swedish, Norwegian origin. My mother-in-law went there to look at the polar bears. Oh, and she never came back. No, no, she came back, but it was a, a very expensive trip. I would love to go to Iceland. I wouldn't. I would love to go shopping. Like just at a mall? Well, just shopping, and I don't think Iceland's a shopping destination. Just go to Bata Shoes and pair, pick up a pair of loafers. <laughs> Bata. Bata doesn't exist anymore. Go to uh, Walmart and buy a nice pair of slacks. You know, what's really funny is like, I'm not one of those, like, I'm going to go on like a, you know, a vacation to see the wilds and to do, no, not me. I'm on a vacation. I'm, I'm luxury. I'm I don't rough it on vacation. Is that because I, you were attacked by a pack of monkeys on a beach? I just enjoy being comfortable, Dan. That's why we're Because friends. those apes ravaged you on the beach. Now we probably down to three listeners after that opening. So... Well, I hope not, because boy, oh boy, do we have a cool show for our listeners today, Riley. That's what you said last time. And I was wrong. <laughs> Quite possibly one of the worst shows I have ever done. And I would like to apologize for my poor choice of topic. Mount Shasta? How about Mount Forget About It? Oh, did you notice that somebody commented on Facebook and said... When you see Mount Shasta, you know why that there's so many legends associated with that particular location. Mm -hmm. And I, and that's sort of what I had read that it, when you go there, it's it's unmistakably a powerful place. I think it looks like Mount Doom a bit, like it's got a peak and it is a volcano. It's a volcano. You could throw the ring into it. You could throw the ring into it. All right, let's get started because this is a, a a bigger one, Riley. Yeah, you said that in the change room and you lied. <laughs> I just I tried to stop and think about what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was good. I, that caught me off guard. You looked completely <laughs> perplexed. I had to stop and think what you had just said. This is a story that I have been sitting on for, I, I'm going to guess, a year and a half. And it, right near maybe the first... Within the first year of our show, this is one that I came across but never really pulled the strings of it. And I have now, and I'm so glad that I'm finally bringing uh, this story. This is another story from Australia. I don't think we've done many from Australia that I can think of. Do you know what? There is so many, though, fucking crazy murder stories from Australia. Yes. There are so many, like, crazy murder stories. This might be one of them. Really? Yes. Okay, proceed. All right. So, 
Most murders, I think you would agree, are not that difficult to solve. Evidence would seem to you're, point in that you're direction. A, 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 uh, you know, you're into those types of podcasts, the true crime podcasts and stuff, and most crimes fit a pattern and generally the motives are quite clear. I don't know if this is a, a global trend, but I know in Canada and the United States that typically if there's a murder, it's a family member, right? Mm -hmm. often a husband, something along those lines. Well, almost always they know the victim in some capacity. Exactly. There are, of course, always, you know, a handful of cases that don't fit the template. But generally, in this day and age, with all the scientific tools at their disposal, police are generally not baffled anymore by a murder case. Right. The story I'm about to tell you, though, has baffled authorities and amateur sleuths alike for the past 74 years years. It's an oldie. It is one of the strangest and most mysterious cold cases known. What began simply with the discovery of a body on the beach on the first day of the southern summer has become ever more weird. And I would, I think it's, I guess that's December, right? Would be the first, the first days of summer down under. I think so. Yeah. I don't know the specifics. I've not been to Australia, so I'm not that down with the climate, but yeah. I I've never so. been south of the equator. Well, it's time. Have you? No. No, I have not. This case, which remains, theoretically at least, an active investigation, is so shrouded in mystery that we still do not know the victim's identity, have no real idea what killed him, and cannot even be certain whether his death was a murder or a suicide. Ah, okay. So it's like a true crimey one this week. A little bit, with some weird stuff injected in it. You're going to get a call from Karen Kilgara from My Favorite Murder, and she's going to be furious with you. She has written me several letters, and I'm assuming they're her because I've had the handwriting analyzed by a forensic uh, handwriting specialist, all in crayon. And it's, sorry, and I shouldn't say it's writing, it's pictures of me. I can't tell whether I should be intrigued, honored, or insulted. By the way, you, you brought up handwriting experts, and as you know lately, I've marathoned the original Unexplained Mysteries, the one with Robert Stack. And every time they have a handwriting expert on that show, they're the most dour, unhappy looking people Look, you'd ever want to see. If that was your whole life was just looking at writing and not even reading the words necessarily. You're just looking at lines. Well, you could always give it up and pursue another career. But once you get into that world, it's it sucks you in. It's like Scientology. Yep. All right. So what can be said is that the clues in the case of what became known as the Summerton Beach Mystery, Tamam Shud, or the Enigma of the Unknown Man as it is known in Australia add up to one of the world's most perplexing cold cases. In fact, it may be, Riley, the most mysterious one of all. Are you ready to dive into this mystery? Let's just start with the facts, ma'am, okay? I'm just gonna offer you up a plate full of facts. Get your book out, a pen, pencil, and a magnifying glass, because you're old and your eyesight is bad, Riley. No. At seven o'clock on the warm evening of Tuesday, November 30th, 1948, jeweler John Bain Lyons and his wife went for a stroll on Somerton Beach, a seaside resort a few miles south of Adelaide. As they walked toward Glenelg, they noticed a smartly dressed man lying on the sand, his head propped against a seawall. He was lolling about 20 yards from them, legs outstretched, feet crossed. As the couple watched, the man extended his right arm upward and let it fall back to the ground. Lyons 
thought he might be making a drunken attempt to smoke a cigarette. They didn't really make much of it. It was just, you know, something you would sometimes see on that beach. Half an hour later, another couple noticed the same man lying in the same position. They were just above him, though. I guess it was like a, uh, there's a, a, break wall, a breaker wall or whatever. So they were actually looking from above down at this man. Okay. And from looking from above, the woman could see that he was immaculately dressed in a suit with smart new shoes, polished to a mere shine, which were an odd clothing choice for the beach. He was motionless, his left arm splayed out on the sand, and the couple noticed that he was simply asleep, his face surrounded by mosquitoes, and the husband uh, even said he must be dead to the world not to notice them. It was not until the next morning that it became obvious that the man was not so much dead to the world as actually dead. John Lyons returned from a morning swim to find some people clustered at the seawall where he had seen his uh, quote-unquote drunk the previous evening. Walking over, he saw a figure slumped in much the same position, head resting on the seawall, feet crossed. Now, though, the body was cold. There were no marks of any sort of violence. A half-smoked cigarette was lying on the man's collar as though it had fallen from his mouth. Oh, those people that saw him raise his hand and walked by must feel like real shit. This is the guy. Then he must feel like an asshole. He did. I hope that plagues him for the rest of his life. My God, Riley. Well, That man's probably dead now. Probably. I I bet, you know, all kidding aside, though, I bet it did. That would bother me. That would bother me, too. He should have called the police for a wellness check. But this is in the 1940s, too. Right? I guess, I guess. But, yeah. So to see a drunk on the beach was not a, a big thing. And there are accounts of him saying that he was upset by it, that he didn't do more at the time. Yeah, go to Tampa. Seeing a drunk on the beach is still a thing. The body reached the Royal Adelaide Hospital three hours later. There, Dr. John Barkley Bennett put the time of death at no earlier than 2 a.m. He noted the likely cause of death as heart failure and added that he suspected poisoning. The contents of the man's pockets were spread out on a table. Tickets from Adelaide to the beach, a pack of chewing gum, some matches, two combs, and a pack of Army Club cigarettes containing seven cigarettes of another more expensive brand called Kensitas. Do you know those? Never heard of that. Must be exclusive to Australia. Yeah, maybe. There was no wallet and no cash and no ID. None of the man's clothes bore any name tags. And this is the first sort of very strange thing. In all but one case, the maker's labels had been carefully snipped away. One trouser pocket had been neatly repaired with an unusual variety of orange thread. By the time a full autopsy was carried out a day later, the police had already exhausted their best leads as to the dead man's identity. And the results of the postmortem did little to enlighten them. It revealed that the corpse's pupils were smaller than normal and unusual, that a dribble of spittle had run down the side of the man's mouth as he lay, and that he was probably unable to swallow it. His spleen, meanwhile, was strikingly large and firm, about three times normal size, and the liver was distended with congested blood. So in the man's stomach, pathologist John Dwyer found the remains of his last meal, a pasty, which, you know, Riley, a lot of people call them a pasty. Yeah, but a pasty is something you put on your breasts if you're a woman, um, a loose woman. <laughs> so they found uh, the, the pasty and a further quantity of blood. So that too suggested poisoning, though there was nothing to show that the poison had been in the food. The dead man's peculiar behavior on the beach, 
slumping in a suit, raising and dropping his right arm, seemed less like drunkenness than it did a lethal dose of something taking slow effect. But repeated tests on both blood and organs by an expert chemist failed to reveal the faintest trace of a poison. I was astounded that he found nothing, Dwyer admitted at the inquest. In fact, no cause of death was ever found. The body displayed other peculiarities. The dead man's calf muscles were high and very well developed, although in his late 40s he had the legs of an athlete. His toes, meanwhile, were oddly wedge-shaped. One expert who gave evidence at the inquest noted, I have not seen the tendency of calf muscles so pronounced as in this case. His feet were rather striking, suggesting that this is my own assumption, that he had been in the habit of wearing high-heeled and pointed shoes. <laughs> Why are you finding that funny? It's just very funny. Perhaps, another expert witness hazarded, the dead man had been a ballet dancer. This left the Adelaide coroner, Thomas Cleland, with a real puzzle on his hands. The only practical solution, as supported by local professor Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks, was that a very rare poison had been used, one that decomposed very early after death, leaving no trace. Do you know something really interesting? You pause to take a, a sip of urine, and it's the perfect time for me to interject. Did you ever notice all your podcasts are populated by people who have three names? Like the, the people that we mentioned? Like, the, like everyone you've talked about in this podcast has had three names. Oh, this episode. In, in yeah. William Bell Fanupas and Dr. Floyd Mickey Falakis. Yeah. They all have three names. For some reason, I think the Smithsonian was one of my sources for this. And they used all like the full names of everybody. Okay. But usually your podcasts have, you know, because I'm always laughing at all the names in your podcasts because they're always so Maybe unusual. we're dumb and we're not using our full names. Do you have a middle name? Yeah, Riley Timothy Stewart. That's not exciting at all. But you know what my um, my name once was? Was Timothy Mark Emerson Stewart. Emerson was my grandfather's name. Why'd you get rid of it? It's, that's a lot. Well, I, I actually toyed with changing my name to Emerson because who has that name? Nobody. No Imagine Emerson Stewart. But then I sound like I'm going to do something pretentious. Mine is Martin. Martin. Like, so Daniel Martin Lajoie? Yeah, but the problem is that when you link that with my first name and last, uh, I, I sound so French. Daniel Martin Lajoie. And I'm not, yeah. right? And it's not Martin. It's actually the Irish Martin. One of my Irish surnames is Martin. And that's where that comes from. What is the um, what is the Irish last name if you had it? What would it be in your family? Uh, on my mom's side, there's Craze and Martins. Rogers is the other that I can Daniel Martin Cray sounds good. That's a good stage You know name. what? When I was in theater school, I was thinking of changing my name to Daniel Craig. But boy, that would have been a mistake with Daniel Craig. Right. And you're not that well built. Well, I was back then. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like that? Not ripped like him, but I was pretty, I was lean and, and running 10 kilometers. Uh, you know, all those old shape. actors like Daniel Craig, well, older actors, I shouldn't say old, but all the older actors who are forced to keep their physique in shape, they all talk about how horrible it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hugh Jackman said one of the best parts of not having to do Wolverine anymore was not having to maintain that level of fitness. Mm -hmm. He said it's like a horrible, horrible. And, you know, even young Tobey Maguire said for Spider-Man, it was horrible. He said for like six months before the film would start, he would just go on this horribly restrictive diet because he couldn't have any fat on him. And like, can you imagine? What's the name of the actor who plays the Witcher and Superman? 
Henry Cavill. He was talking about what he has to do for those for those two roles. They dehydrate themselves yeah, so that I, I, they don't drink anything for four days. And on the fourth day, that's when they shoot because all the, the skin is tight on your on your muscles. It reveals. And like, that's crazy. That's not. That's so silly. Henry Cavill is probably one of the most beautiful men on the on the earth, but I don't think he's very talented. I'd love to switch bodies with him. Man, the things I could do because he's. He's okay as an actor, but he really gets by on his looks. Like he really does. Yeah. He's okay. He's just okay. Okay? Okay. Let's get back to this. So, um, no, I want to talk more about Henry Cavill. That's we're, we're going to change this is the going to pod- turn into a 3-hour podcast the way we're going. It's okay, Dan. I love spending time with you. You're so dreamy. So, Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks, okay? I like to call him SCSH. He mentioned that he thought it was possible that it was a poison that decomposed very quickly after the death was done. So the only poisons capable of this were so dangerous and deadly that Hicks would not say their names aloud in open court. Instead, he passed Cleland a scrap of paper on which he had written the names of two possible candidates, Digitalis and Strophanthin. Strophanthin. Hicks suspected the latter. Strophanthin is a rare drug derived from the seeds of some African plants. Historically, it was used by a Somali tribe to poison their arrows. So, more baffled than ever now, the police continued their investigation. A full set of fingerprints was taken and circulated throughout Australia, and then throughout the English-speaking world. No one could identify them. People from all over Adelaide were escorted to the mortuary in the hope that they could give the corpse a name. Some thought they knew the man from photos published in the newspapers. Others were the distraught relatives of missing persons. And not one of them recognized the body. Hmm. By January 11th, the South Australia police had investigated and dismissed pretty much every lead they had. The investigation was now widened in an attempt to locate any abandoned personal possessions, perhaps left luggage that might suggest the dead man had come from away. This meant checking every hotel, dry cleaner, lost property office, and railway station for miles around. At first, this appeared to be a break in the case, as it did produce results. Oh. On January 12th, detectives found in the main railway station in Adelaide a brown suitcase that had been deposited in the cloakroom there on November 30th. The staff could remember nothing about the owner, and the case's contents were not much more revealing. The case did contain a reel of orange thread identical to that to repair the dead man's trousers, but painstaking care had been applied to remove practically every trace of the owner's identity. The case bore no stickers or markings, and a label had been torn off from one side. The tags were missing from all but three items of the clothing inside. These bore the name Keen or T. Keen, but it proved impossible to trace anyone of that name. Uh, the, the police ended up concluding that someone had probably purposely left them on, knowing that the dead man's name was not Keen or T. Keen. The remainder of the contents also didn't illuminate the identity of the unknown man. There was a stencil kit of the sort used by the third officer on, a mer- on merchant ships responsible for stenciling of cargo, uh, a table knife with the haft cut down, and a coat stitched using a feather stitch unknown in Australia. A tailor identified the stitch work as American in origin, suggesting that the coat, and perhaps its wearer, had traveled during the war years. 
but searches of shipping and immigration records from across the country, again, produced no likely leads. Interesting, eh? I, I find that interesting. interesting too, that, that a stitching pattern isn't really used in a country or is, is, you wouldn't think that there would be that many patterns. Yeah, I didn't know about that at all. That's a very dark beverage. Is that iced tea? It is. Okay. The police have brought in another expert, John Cleland, not to be mistaken with Thomas Cleland, who I mentioned earlier, who was a professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide, to re-examine the corpse and the dead man's possessions. In April, four months after the discovery of the body, Cleland's search produced a final piece of evidence. One that would prove to be the most baffling of all. Cleland discovered a small pocket sewn into the waistband of the dead man's trouser. Previous examiners had missed it, and several accounts of the case have referred to it as a secret pocket, but it seems to have been more like a pocket that you would have put a, uh, a watch in, like a fob, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you know what they found inside that pocket? This I have is no idea. crazy. An iPhone. <laughs> Can you imagine? No, that would be an amazing story. Right? Inside, tightly rolled, was a minute scrap of paper, which opened up, proved to contain two words, typeset in an elaborate printed script. The phrase read, Tamam Shud. But what language is that? Well, we'll get to that. Frank Kennedy, the police reporter for the Adelaide Advertiser, recognized the words as Persian and telephoned the police to suggest they obtain a copy of a book of poetry, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. This work, written in the 12th century, had become popular in Australia during the war years in a much-loved translation by Edward Fitzgerald. It existed in numerous editions, but police inquiries to libraries, publishers, and bookshops failed to find one that matched the fancy type. At least it was possible, however, to say that the words Tam Amsha did come from Khayyam's romantic reflections on life and mortality. They were, in fact, the last words in most English translations, not surprisingly, because the phrase means, it is ended. Tamam oh. shud, it is ended. Oh, wow. Well, that's a statement right there. But hidden, yeah. hidden on the body. This new clue suggested that the death might have been a suicide, right? It makes sense. In fact, the South Australia police never did turn their missing purse inquiries into a full-blown murder investigation. But the discovery took them no closer to identifying the dead man, and in the meantime, his body had begun to decompose. Arrangements were made for a burial, but conscious that they were disposing of one of the few pieces of evidence they had, they had the corpse embalmed and a cast taken of the head and upper torso, which you can still see pictures of. I wonder where it is. The body? No, the, the cast they made, the bust. Oh, they, they, they have it still. They should sell them. Well, they, it, it, I'll get to this a little bit later. It's become quite handy for modern-day investigators. Yeah, but they should make a cast of that and sell them. Like, there should be a gift shop. After that, the body was buried, sealed under concrete in a plot of dry ground specifically chosen in case it became necessary to exhume it. As late as 1978, flowers would be found at odd intervals on the grave, but no one could ascertain who had left them there or why. In July, fully eight months after the investigation had begun, the search for the right Rubaiyat produced results. On the 23rd, a Glenelg man walked into the detective office in Adelaide with a copy of the book and a strange story. The previous December, just after the discovery of the unknown body, 
he had gone for a drive with his brother-in-law in a car he kept parked a few hundred yards from Somerton Beach. The brother-in-law had found a copy of the Rubaiyat lying on the floor by the rear seats. Each man had silently assumed it belonged to the other, and the book had sat in the glove compartment ever since. Alerted by a newspaper article about the search, the two men had gone back to take a closer look. They found that part of the final page had been torn out, together with Kayyem's final words. They went to the police. Detective Sergeant Lionel Seamus O'Reardon Leonard Teapot Lean took a close look at the book. You made that up. He didn't even take the bait on that. No, because you made it up. How could you tell? Because I, I Teapot? Hesitated. Hello, everyone. I'm Mr. Teapot, and I've come to pour my heart out. Get it? <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean took a close look at the book. Almost at once, he found a telephone number penciled on the rear cover. Using a magnifying glass, he dimly made out the faint impression of some other letters written in capitals underneath. Here, at last, was a solid clue to go on. The phone number was unlisted, but it proved to belong to a young nurse who lived near Somerton Beach. For a long time, she was not publicly identified. This is an interesting part to this whole case. The South Australia Police of 1949 were willing to protect witnesses embarrassed to be linked to the case. She, and for many years, she was just simply known by her nickname, Jestin. J-E-S-T-Y-N. That sounds like the name of the company that you buy your school pictures and rings from. Yes, that's Jostens. Right? Yes. That's immediately what I thought of. So this was unfortunate, though, that her name was kept uh, hidden until very recently. It's in the last 10 years that we know her actual name. Which is Teapot, and that's why Which she kept teapot, it. Which is Teapot, yes. Yeah. Uh, because it hampered investigative efforts. People could have maybe inquired with her she's since passed but they they couldn't because no one knew who she was so eventually in 2010 with the permission of her family her identity was revealed to be that of jessica ellen thompson don't forget the ellen reluctantly it seemed because perhaps because she was living with a man who would later become her husband the nurse admitted that she had indeed presented a copy of the rubaiyat to a man she had known during the war she gave the detectives his name Alfred Boxall. At last, the police felt confident that they had solved the mystery. Boxall surely was the unknown man. Within days, they traced his home to Marubra, sorry, Marubra, yeah, Marubra, New South Wales. The problem was that Boxall turned out to be still alive, and he still had the copy of the Rubaiyat Justin had given him. It oh. bore the nurse's inscriptions, but was completely in. Ah, uh, okay. The scrap of paper, yeah, the scrap of paper hidden in the dead man's pocket must have come from somewhere else. It did come from somewhere else. But how did her number end up in, like, inscribed in that book? Oh, they must have been so frustrated. They thought they had it. Yeah, oh, that's frustrating. So it might have helped if the police had questioned Justin closely, but it is clear that they did not. The gentle probing that the nurse received did yield some intriguing bits of information. Interviewed again, she recalled that some time the previous year, she could not be certain of the date, she had come home to be told by neighbors that a unknown man had called and asked for her. And confronted with the cast of the dead man's face, Justin seemed completely taken aback, to the point of giving the appearance she was about to faint, according to Sergeant Lean. 
Oh my God. She seemed to recognize the man, yet firmly denied that he was anyone she knew. That left the faint impression Sergeant Lean had noticed in the Glen Elg Rubaiyat. Examined under ultraviolet light, five lines of jumbled letters could be seen, the second of which had been crossed out. The first three were separated from the last two by a pair of straight lines with an X written over them. It seemed that they were some sort of code. And you can actually see this. I'll also post this in our uh, Instagram and Facebook uh, posts. So you can actually see the, the, the code that they they found using ultraviolet light. Oh, I book. can't wait to see it. It's starting to turn into like Zodiac. It is absolutely. Breaking a code from only a small fragment of text is exceedingly difficult, as we know from mm-hmm. you know the Zodiac. It's, it's really hard when you only have a snippet. Uh, but the police did their best. They sent the message to Naval Intelligence, home to the finest cipher experts in Australia, and allowed the message to be published in the press. This produced a frenzy of amateur code-breaking, and almost all of it was worthless. And a message from the Navy concluding that the code appeared unbreakable. And this is a quote. From the manner in which the lines have been represented as being set out in the original, it is evident that the end of each line indicates a break in sense. There is an insufficient number of letters for definite conclusions to be based on analysis, but the indications together with the acceptance of the above breaks in sense indicate, insofar as can be seen, that the letters do not constitute any kind of simple cipher or code. The frequency of the occurrence of letters, whilst inconclusive, corresponds more favorably with the table of frequencies of initial letters of words in English than with any other table. Accordingly, a reasonable explanation would be that the lines are the initial letters of words of a verse of poetry or such like. And there, all intents and purposes, the mystery rested. The Australian police never cracked the code or identified the unknown man. When the South Australia coroner published the final results of his investigation in 1958, his report concluded with the following admission. I am unable to say who the deceased was. I am unable to say how he died or what was the cause of death. So, where are we now? Oh, please, Dan, please tell me that this is one of those um, mysteries that technology and information sharing has cracked. It has not cracked it. But they tried. It's oh. more, there's more information coming for you, though, here, Riley. It just gets stranger. Okay. In recent years, the Tamam Shud case has begun to attract new attention. Amateurs for decades have probed the loose ends left by the police, solving one or two minor mysteries, but often creating new ones in their in their place. And two especially persistent investigators, retired Australian policeman Jerry Feltus and Professor Derek Abbott of the University of Adelaide have made particularly useful progress. And I'm really excited to note that they both have two names. Only two. I cut them. They have third name, like they have a middle name, but I, I didn't want to put them in because I didn't want them to be teased by you. It's Jerry Lillian Teapot. Feltus and Professor Derek Steamwagon Abbott. Steamwagon. And I knew you would laugh at that, and I don't think that's fair to Jerry or Derek's mum and father, dad, mom and dad, who named. Doesn't Steamwagon sound like a beer? Hey, baby, why don't you come over to my house later and I'll give you a ride on the Steamwagon. Both uh, Jerry the and Derek. Steamwagon. It's the hottest ride in town. I'm just going to keep... 
Okay, look, Jerry and Derek and I take this stuff seriously. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you don't want to hear what Jerry and Derek and I have to say about it, then why don't you crack open a steam whistle, go to your sauna, sit there, drink it, and leave us alone. I'm so not a sauna person. Do you know I can last in a sauna a minute? I get so overheated instantly. I'm same with hot tubs. Can't do them. Not my thing. I don't like being extremely hot. Do you like anything that actually produces joy for most people? Oh, man. So both GF and DA, that's what that's what they like me to call them, both freely admit that they have not solved the mystery, but they've come up with some interesting theories. So let's get into the theories, 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 theories section. First, the man's identity remains unknown. It is generally presumed that he was known to Jessica Thompson and may well have been the man who called at her apartment, but even if he was not, the nurse's shocked response when confronted with the body cast was telling. If she had never seen him, I don't know that she would have responded that way. But maybe she would have. It's a dead body. Maybe that was shocking enough. I don't know. Might the solution be found in her activities during World War II? Was she in the habit of presenting men friends with copies of the Rubaiyat? And if so, might the dead man have been a former boyfriend or more whom she did not wish to confess to knowing? Abbott's researches certainly suggest as much for his research on Earth that she had a son. Professor Henneberg, I think his first name is pronounced Message Henneberg, uh, who's a professor of anatomy at the University of Adelaide, examined images of the Somerton man's ears and found that his simba, which is the upper ear hollow, is larger than his cavum, the lower ear hollow a feature possessed by only 1-2% to of the Caucasian population. In May 2009, Abbott consulted with dental experts who concluded that the Somerton man had hypodontia, a rare genetic disorder of both lateral incisors, a feature present again in only about 2% of the general population. In June 2010, Abbott obtained a photograph of Jessica Thompson's eldest son, Robin, which clearly showed that he, like the unknown man, had not only a larger Simba than Cavum, but also Hypodontia. The chance that this was a coincidence has been estimated as between 1 in 10 million and 1 in 20 million. Wow. So it's Kaboom. looking like they're related somehow. Yeah. You know what? Every single person, including myself, after listening to this episode, are going to go to the mirror and look at their ears. Yeah, but if you look at it, right, that, that upper part is smaller than the, the than the lower part. Right. The cavity, yeah. But we're all going to check. You know, we're all going to check. Yeah. Neat, eh? So the media have suggested that Robin Thompson, uh, who was 16 months old in 1948 and died in 2009, may have been a child of either Boxall or the Somerton Man and passed off as Prosper Thompson's son. Prosper Thompson was the, the husband of... Um, the nurse. Fred, the nurse, yeah. I love that name. I've never heard Prosper as a first name. It sounds like Salem witchy yes, first name. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. DNA testing would confirm or eliminate this speculation. Abbott believes an exhumation and an autosomal DNA test would eventually link the Summerton man to a short list of surnames, which, along with existing clues to the man's identity, would be the final piece of the puzzle. In his book on the case, Jerry Feltis stated that when he interviewed Thompson in 2002, he found that she was being either evasive or she just did not wish to talk about it. 
Oh. Feltus believed Thompson knew the Somerton man's identity, and Thompson's daughter Kate, in a tele television interview in 2014 with Channel 9's 60 Minutes, not to be mistaken with the American version, also said that she believed her mother knew the dead man. Might the dead man have been the father of the son? If so, could he have killed himself when told he could not see them? Those who argue against this theory point to the cause of the man's death. How credible is it, they say, that someone would commit suicide by dousing himself with a poison of, of rarity, right? Yes. Why not shoot yourself or hang yourself or drown yourself yeah. or just poison yourself with something you can get over the counter? Yeah. This person didn't have a, a, a heart condition, so it's not like he would have had a prescription for digitalis or the other uh, nameable uh, uh, drug. Do you know I've grown digitalis in my garden several times. It never prospers, but it's foxglove. Oh, is that what it is? Foxglove is digitalis, yeah. For some reason, I can't ever make it um, work, but that's what that is. It's used as a heart medication. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, he, so, but he didn't have a heart condition, so there's yeah. no reason for him to have that. It's odd. Why kill yourself that way? Uh, so digitalis and even strophanthin uh, can be had from pharmacies, but never off the shelf. Both poisons are muscle relaxants, and as you said, they're, they're meant to treat heart disease, so this just doesn't add up. The apparently exotic nature of the death suggests to these theorists that the unknown man was possibly a spy. Oh, I like that. Interestingly, Alfred Boxall had worked in intelligence during the war. And the unknown man died, after all, at the onset of the Cold War, and at a time when the British rocket testing facility at Umera, a few hundred miles from Adelaide, was one of the most secret bases in the world. It has even been suggested that poison was administered to him via his tobacco, which might explain the mystery of why his army club pack contained seven Kensitas cigarettes. Oh dear. Far-fetched as this seems, there are two more genuinely odd things about the mystery of Tamram Shud that point away from anything so mundane as suicide. The first is the apparent impossibility of locating an exact duplicate of the Rubaiyat handed in to the police in July 1949. Exhaustive inquiries by Jerry Feltis at last tracked down a near-identical version with the same cover, published by a New Zealand bookstore chain named Whitcomb and Tombs, but it was published in a more square format. Add to that one of Derek Abbott's leads, and the puzzle gets yet more peculiar. Abbott has discovered that at least one other man died in Australia after the war with a copy of Kayyem's poems close by him. This man's name was George Marshall, and he was a Jewish immigrant from Singapore, and his copy of the Rubaiyat was published in London by Methune, a seventh edition. Not especially strange on its own, but inquiries to the publisher and to libraries around the world suggest that there were never more than five editions of Methuen's Rubaiyat, which means that Marshall's seventh edition didn't exist. They never made a seventh edition. And it was as non-existent as the unknown man's Whitcomb and Tombs appears to be. Might the books not have been books at all, but disguised spy gear of some sort? Say oh, one-time wow. code pads, which brings us to the final mystery. Going through the police file on the case, Jerry Feltis stumbled across a neglected piece of evidence, a statement given in 1959 by a man who had been on Somerton Beach. 
there on the evening that the unknown man expired and walking toward the spot where his body would eventually be found, the witness, a police report stated, saw a man carrying another on his shoulder near the water's edge. He could not describe the man. At the time, this did not seem that mysterious. The witness assumed he had seen someone carrying a drunk friend. Looked at in the cold light of day, though, it raises questions. After all, none of the people who saw a man lying on the seafront earlier had noticed his face. Might he not have been the unknown man at all? Might the body found next morning have been the one seen on the stranger's shoulder? And if so, might this conceivably suggest this really was a case involving spies and murder? Mm-hmm. So, Riley, an exhumation was finally carried out on the 19th of May, 2021. So, less than a year ago. Oh, wow. So, this is, oh, wow. This is cooking recently. This, is, this was the final little piece because I did all my research and some of these things were published in the last, within the last 20 years. So, but I needed to find out, right? So, this mm -hmm. is, this is. Absolutely. So, uh, it was reported that the body was exhumed as part of Operation Persevere and Operation Persist, which are investigating historical unidentified remains in South Australia. Here's a weird thing that I do want to point out. The Summerton Man, or the Unknown Man, was shown to have and this is from the, the DNA results, was shown to have American, East Coast American, and Native American DNA. In uh, an earlier DNS a DNA test taken in 2012 from hairs they found in that death mask that you were saying they, they should sell. So they found his hairs and they were able to extract them and get DNA. So based on the results from 2012, uh, it appeared that he was not from Australia at all. In fact, he was indigenous to the United States. He was a you know, a wow. Native American. Did they, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry if I'm jumping on your toes, did they compare his DNA with the nurse's son? They did. And that's now the perfect segue. The DNA taken just in this past year showed, however, that he shared similar DNA to Prester Thompson and invariably her son, Robin, thus erasing the spy theory. So he's a relative of, uh, of Prester. And here's oh, another wow. interesting tidbit. All of the original autopsy reports from, 40, from 1948 and 49 have gone missing, including all of Cleland's notes. Everything's gone. So the DNA results taken by unofficial sources in 2012 mm -hmm. showed very different results than the official uh, DNA results taken this past year. They don't jive at all. Oh, wow. Weird, eh? Yeah. So are the facts of the case slowly and intentionally being erased? If so, what did he know or what did he do that would lead to such a deep and prolonged cover-up? Did he kill himself? And then the family kept his identity under wraps to protect the family name? I mean, if, if this was a suicide by a slighted lover, why all the other odd pieces of evidence? Indeed. The clothing, the weird addition of the Rubaiyat, the cutout labels, the mysterious death, etc. None of this adds that is the case of Tamam Shud. Riley, what do you think? Is that where you're leaving it? That's where, that's all we have. The rest is all speculation, right? I think the Ouija board in my head is pointing to some kind of spy or espionage kind of activity. Me because too. it's all really weird, right? It's just all really weird, Dan. You know, the, the piece that really sticks out to me, it's all his identification, uh, like anything that could identify where he came from the labels of his clothing, his suitcase, etc., that they'd all been neatly taken off and removed. Yeah. And if he was committing suicide or something like that, why bother? Exactly. 
Like once you're dead, who cares? Unless and here's another question for yeah. you: If he is in fact a Thompson, then who who went missing? I love that I just heard a dog bark, a chair went, and somebody went to get the dog. Yeah, I heard yeah the, exactly. I, yeah. I heard the whole play upstairs. So, it, it, but you know what I mean? If he's a Thompson, as the DNA now suggests, who who is he? Wouldn't that kind of be a yeah, we lost our, our brother or our uncle or our cousin. And the nurse is dead, so there's no way to get any more information out well, of her. And here's the other piece is that she was protected until her death. They never revealed her name. My question then is, was she also a spy, right? Like, yeah. I, I do believe that she's connected to this. I don't think she's not connected to it. But was she um, uh, like part of that chain, right, of, of dropping codes and stuff like that? And if she was, who was she working for? If they're protecting her, you have to assume that she was Australian. But the, who was this guy and what had he done? Maybe he had done something wrong. Maybe he was funneling secrets to the Russians or the Chinese. Who knows? At that so, time, probably the Russians, not the Chinese. No one has ever come forward saying that they know the guy. No one has ever come forward saying that they've known the guy. A Canadian actually um, recently, because you can you can see his death photo and it's really strange looking. But a Canadian uh, artist took you know his his dimensions or whatever based on the death mask and all that and showed us what well, he would have looked like living. And he looks he's not he's not even he's a handsome guy. Oh, I see what they mean about the ears. Yeah, he just has a larger top yeah, of his ear. Yeah, looks like a guy who played rugby or something. Oh, and there's a picture of him on the beach. Yeah, there's lots of stuff that you can look at. Oh, I didn't realize he had tan slacks and he looks quite sharp. He Well, that's what I'm saying. He was immaculately dressed. This was a very uh, prim and proper guy. This was not a, a um, an alky, you know? Yeah. Oh, and there's the bust. Mm -hmm. Oh, the bust is very... Yeah, no, they shouldn't sell that at the gift shop. It's un, It's disturbing. Isn't it though? Yeah, what a strange, strange story, Dan. I don't know what to think. Again, this is just, all you can do is sort of piss in the wind. There's no way to know, but I would... Well, especially that the DNA evidence seems to be contradictory. Yeah, I would lean to, uh, lean to like you build in the forest when you're a Cub Scout. I would lean towards um, him. There's something untoward going on. Something secret and spy-like and sneaky. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, that's it. No, no UFOs connected to this one. Amen. Uh, no demons. No demons. It's just yeah. a straight, weird, odd, unexplained case. And I know you and I have talked about. We're not. We're not a true crime podcast. No. To me, this this ventures into the land of the weird more than it is like a, a true crime type story. Yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, well, the same with the Zodiac. The only reason I focused on the Zodiac is not because of the crime, is because I find the ciphers so fascinating. That's right, and this one includes ciphers, and it yeah. includes weird, you know, uh, unpublished versions of a book, a strange book, and mm -hmm. it's just all very odd. Yeah, that's a that's a very strange story. I loved it. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> I love when you say that. It's like my dad. Oh, thanks, dad. Oh, it just, it makes me so happy when you're Good crying. for you, Dan. Good for you. You went out there and you gave it your all. Thanks, Dad. It's so much better than last week when you told me that I was shit and that I had to go back to the closet. Oh, your dad's going to hate you. He never called you shit. You never. probably had the nicest dad. You do have the nicest I dad. I do have a very nice father. I mean, yes. you used to lock your best friend in there while they were making love. But I did do that. I don't think they were making love. But I did. You know that story. Then. Oh, I know that story. It's horrifying. My friends were over and my parents were in bed 
asleep and I told one of my friends, I don't know why, but he went upstairs and I told him to go towards my parents' room and he went in and then realized that he was he had gone into my parents' room and I shut the door on him and I wouldn't open it. And he was quietly, Danny, Danny, let me out. Danny, let me It's such a terrible story. Uh, and then my dad woke up and my daddy, let him out. Let oh. Him out. <laughs> oh, that's so uncomfortable. And I was laughing just like this. Because if you know my parents, they're not angry. They would never be angry with something like that. Like they're used that to just you. rolled off their back, right? Yeah. yeah but oh, that's mortifying. <laughs> Clearly your parents don't sleep in the nude. I don't want to know. <laughs> okay. Take take us out. Come on, take us out. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for listening to The Weird. Again, to our, our this new uh, surge of listeners from Iceland. Welcome to the show. It's very exciting to have uh, you, as well as Portugal. We have a, a, a listener base out of Portugal, too. It's, it's really uh, quite wonderful to see so many new listeners uh, enjoying the word of the weird. Folks, if you enjoy listening to this show, uh, then please uh, feel free to spread the word of the weird with everyone that you know. You know, they say now that uh, plants and trees uh, do communicate. So if uh, you are in the woods and just start screaming at the trees, uh, uh, you know, uh, or play our show for a tree, because I think uh, everyone would like that, and then that would be an interesting way to spread the word of the weird is through natural fauna. All right, uh, you can follow us on Instagram and on Facebook. I am Dan, that guy across from me is Riley, and we are the hosts of The Weird. Thanks for listening. Good night, everybody. See you next week. Bye now. Nature is also full of sounds. Chickadee, chickadee. Though these sounds may not be familiar to most people, they can be understood by other animals. When you hear this, it's not just a noise. It has meaning that the bird is trying to communicate. In this case, the thrush is saying, Hello, I'm here. I'm all right. Each bird can communicate several different messages. For instance, the common northern cardinal can say, This means, I'm hungry. The children are hungry. Bring food. In a cardinal family, parents and young make this soft chipping sound. Quack, 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 quack.